This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Describe your culinary style in two words. Punk rock. Mary Mammoliti is cooking things up. I really do love to cook. It's a way of taking care of people. Contrary to Seinfeld, soup can be a meal. Now I'm losing the vision in my left eye and making pizzas has become a real challenge, but I still love it. I noticed that with cooking, whenever there's food involved, whether we have sight or not, if you have that passion for it, it all turns out the same. Kitchen Confession, new episodes every second Wednesday. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Coming up, an in-depth look inside the decades-long East Coast battle between fishers and the federal government over Mi'kmaq treaty rights. Matt Spears reads The New Lobster Wars by Zoe Heaps Tennant. Zoe Heaps Tennant is a writer and producer living in Toronto. Her work has appeared in Granta, Monocle, The Globe and Mail, The CBC, and The BBC. I'm Matt Spears. This is an article titled The New Lobster Wars by Zoe Heaps Tennant from the January-February issue of The Walrus. Just before noon, on a warm Wednesday in August 2019, Marilyn Lee Francis slowed her boat down and looked out across the water. The buoy wasn't there. She sat at the bow, held the wheel, and considered the currents. An army green baseball cap shielded her eyes from the sun. It was almost high tide, and the strong poles in the Bay of Fundy had likely made her lobster traps disappear, hiding them beneath the ocean's surface, as she'd hoped. See, Francis called back to her friend, tide's pulling our buoy down. I was going to say, Tiffany Nickerson was perched on an empty trap at the stern of the small skiff. It was her second day out fishing with Francis. The Mi'kmaq have fished these waters along the coast of what is now Nova Scotia for millennia and have called this place home for just as long. Francis, like Nickerson, is Mi'kmaq, and she was teaching her friend how to catch lobster. From the boat, the port town of Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, appeared in miniature. Like it is to so many coastal communities in the Maritimes, lobster is part of the local DNA. Along the town's main strip, shops sell nautical kitsch, smiling cartoon lobsters drawn on cards, mugs that say, work like a captain, play like a pirate. Tourists pass through the port and nearby coastal towns to eat at restaurants with names like Captain's Cabin or The Crow's Nest. Diners pick lobsters from tanks and don plastic bibs to catch the splatter when they crack open the shells. Lobster is Canada's most valuable seafood export, and the sea around southwestern Nova Scotia, or Gespawichik, where Francis fishes, is one of the largest and most lucrative lobster fishing areas in the country. Gespawichik is one of the seven districts that make up the vast Mi'kmaq territory of Mi'kma'i. Federal law requires all fishers to operate with a license, but like many Mi'kmaq fishers, Francis and Nickerson assert that they don't need one, which is why Nickerson has to learn about more than just how to set traps. I wonder if DFO got it, Francis said to her friend as her boat rocked on the waves. Francis checked the location on a GPS device hanging from a cord around her neck. It wouldn't be the first time officers from Fisheries and Oceans Canada, commonly known as the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, DFO, had hauled Francis's traps out of the water 
and lock them up in a fenced-off compound. Frances was fishing without a license that day, as she always does. She was also fishing in August, three months before the start of the DFO-regulated season. After providing for her family and giving some of her catch to elders in her community, Frances usually trades or sells the rest. To DFO, that's another affront. Without a commercial license, any sales or trades, however small, are considered illegal. The DFO regulates fishing in oceans, lakes, and rivers in Canada, which includes determining and enforcing who can fish when, where, and how much they can catch. The department issues fishing licenses and decrees, among other things, the start and end of lobster fishing seasons. Officials schedule the seasons around factors such as when the crustaceans breed and molt, and when their new shells have hardened enough to preserve the meat inside. In the waters where Francis drops her traps, the lobster season usually runs from the end of November until the end of May. Fisheries officers police the waters and shorelines to try to catch fishers they accuse of fishing and selling lobster illegally. Many Mi'kmaq fishers, including Francis, assert that they have an inherent right to fish and make a livelihood outside Canadian regulations, a right that is enshrined in the treaties their nations negotiated with the Crown in the 18th century. In 1999, a Supreme Court decision, R.V. Marshall, confirmed Mi'kmaq people's treaty rights to fish, hunt, and sell their harvests, but the federal government has yet to honor the ruling. Which is why, for the past two decades, the DFO and many Mi'kmaq fishers have been engaged in a seemingly endless loop of surveillance and counter-surveillance operations. Despite having their traps and gear seized over and over, many Mi'kmaq fishers haven't given up fishing on their own terms. No, I think the tide's pulling it down, Francis said. She had intended for her traps, or pots as they're often called, to be invisible to the officers who patrol these waters. And she wanted to drop some more before she and Nickerson called it a day. Frances is from Acadia First Nation. She's 37, about 5 foot 6, and she often wears a ribbon skirt made from camouflage fabric. Because I'm always in battle. She's been fishing lobster since she was 14. According to Francis, the DFO's official lobster season is their season, not hers. I'm going to drop one right here, Francis said to her friend. She tied a buoy to one of her traps. Francis had labeled all her buoys with Treaty 1752 Maryland Francis, written in black jiffy marker. Nickerson watched as her friend pushed the trap over the side of the boat. The pot splashed as it hit the water. The treaty name, written on the white buoy, bobbed on the surface. Fisheries officers have been known to go undercover, to slip out onto the water in the middle of the night to microchip lobsters in Mi'kmaq fishers' pots in order to try to trace the shellfish. Less covert operations include seizing Mi'kmaq fishers' traps, catch, boats, and even trucks. Sometimes it's a handful of pots, like the 12 that Francis usually fishes. Other times, they seize hundreds of kilograms of lobster and drop them back into the sea. Conflicts along the East Coast have been surging lately, and not just between indigenous fishers and the government. Many non-indigenous fishers have long accused Mi'kmaq fishers who operate outside the DFO's regulations of poaching, fearing the toll on lobster stocks and, by extension, their own catches and income. Like many Mi'kmaq fishers, they feel the federal government hasn't done enough to address the Supreme Court ruling and bring clarity to treaty rights. With frustrations mounting over the past two decades, many Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers and leaders have had enough. In a November 2019 article in the Chronicle Herald, a Nova Scotia paper, 
A non-indigenous fisher described the rising tensions as a loaded gun waiting to go off. Donald Marshall Jr. and his spouse, Jane McMillan, took turns pulling up nets and emptying eels into a small outboard motorboat in Pomkin Harbor, Nova Scotia. It was a bright August morning in 1993. They'd heard the eels that year were big and running well. Cat, eel in the Mi'kmaq language, are loved by elders, to whom Marshall would give the best ones. The cat might be hung and dried or gutted for katawapul, eel stew. While they checked their nets, a boat with armed DFO officers pulled up alongside them and asked to see their fishing licenses. All fisheries officers are trained by the RCMP and equipped with firearms, batons, pepper spray, and body armor. Marshall told them that he didn't need a license because he was Mi'kmaq, from Member 2 First Nation, recounts Macmillan in her book, Truth and Conviction. Everyone needs a license to fish, one of the officers said to him. I don't need a license, said Marshall. I have the 1752 treaty. The officers wrote down Marshall and Macmillan's names and took a net as evidence. The Treaty of 1752 is one of several treaties that Mi'kmaq Nation chiefs negotiated and signed with the British between 1725 and 1779. These treaties, often referred to as the Peace and Friendship Treaties, are based on sharing the land and trading, and also included other neighboring indigenous nations. The indigenous signatories and their descendants were promised the freedom to hunt, fish, and trade in exchange for an assurance that they would not molest His Majesty's subjects. The Treaty of 1752, in particular, was on Marshall's mind that day because he knew that James Simon, a Mi'kmaq man, had used it in court just eight years earlier to defend his right to hunt. In Simon v. The Queen, in 1985, the Supreme Court wrote, The Treaty of 1752 continues to be in force and effect. A few days after Marshall and Macmillan were questioned by the officers, they sold the 463 pounds of eels they'd caught, at the going rate of $1.70 a pound, for $787.10. They went back out to the harbor to reset their nets. When they returned two days later, their nets and boat were gone. Later that fall, there was a knock at Marshall and McMillan's door. Two fisheries officers had come to notify them that they were being charged with violating federal fishery regulations on multiple fronts. For fishing and selling eels without a license, for using illegal nets, and for doing so after the DFO had declared the fishing season closed. Marshall was 40, soft-spoken, and slender. His mustache was light brown like his hair. And, by 1993, his name had already been in the news for years. In 1971, Marshall was sentenced to life imprisonment for a murder he didn't commit. It was the first high-profile wrongful murder conviction in Canada to be overturned. After 11 years in jail, Marshall was acquitted. A royal commission on Marshall's prosecution found that racism played a part. The miscarriage of justice, wrote the commission, was due in part at least to the fact that Donald Marshall Jr. is a native. Across Canada, Marshall's name became synonymous with a flawed justice system. Marshall's eel fishing case moved from one court to another. I got sick a couple of times, said Marshall, according to historian Ken Coates, who wrote about the case in his book, Marshall Decision and Native Rights. I thought I'd never be in this court again. The charges against Macmillan, who is not indigenous, were dropped early on. It was clear to the first judge who heard the case that the trial was about more than fishing charges. It was a test case for Mi'kmaq treaty rights. The Mi'kmaq have been pushing back against hunting and fishing restrictions 
for as long as can be remembered. In 1927, Mi'kmaq Grand Chief Gabriel Sillyboy was arrested for hunting out of season. He is believed to be the first to use the 1752 Peace and Friendship Treaty in court to fight for the protection of his rights to hunt and fish. Sillyboy was convicted of the charges, but after the Treaty of 1752 was upheld in Simon v. the Queen in 1985, his conviction was nullified. He was pardoned posthumously in 2017, almost 90 years after his conviction. Marshall's trial was watched closely. 34 Mi'kmaq and Willistiquay First Nations in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Quebec would be directly affected by the case. A verdict in favor of Marshall, affirming his treaty right to catch and sell eel, could be interpreted more widely. It could assert the treaty right to harvest and sell other fish, as well as game, plants, and trees, outside the Canadian government's regulations. Indigenous people across the country wondered what legal precedent the ruling might set for them. News clippings often quoted Marshall saying he wasn't going through with the hearing for his own sake. I was there for my people. The trial moved slowly. Marshall's legal team shifted its focus from the Treaty of 1752 to the Peace and Friendship Treaties of 1760 and 1761. These treaties outlined the Mi'kmaq right to not just harvest, but also earn a living by trading the catch. Marshall lost in provincial court and was rejected in the Court of Appeal. But on a Friday in September 1999, six years after the DFO took Marshall's nets and boat, the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed that Marshall had a treaty right to catch and sell fish. Nothing less would uphold the honor and integrity of the Crown, wrote Justice William Ian Corneal Binney. But the language of the Marshall decision was opaque. The ruling stated, The accused treaty rights are limited to securing necessaries, which could be construed in the modern context as equivalent to a moderate livelihood, and do not extend to the open-ended accumulation of wealth. Those two words, moderate livelihood, would get caught up in public debate like a fishbone in the throat for years to come. Many wondered why, after so many non-Indigenous people had accumulated wealth from the resources in their territories, the Mi'kmaq were being confined to living moderately. The decision didn't outline any parameters for what constituted a moderate livelihood. How would it be measured? More than 20 years later, these questions remain unanswered. Many non-Indigenous fishers were livid about the ruling, fearing the potential effect on their fisheries. Tensions rose as Mi'kmaq fishers headed out to drop lobster traps without commercial licenses, some for the first time. In one instance, around 600 non-Indigenous fishers were reported to have blockaded a harbor. The DFO was not prepared for the ruling or the unrest it triggered. We knew instantly that the ruling was going to change our way of life, recalls Sterling Beliveau, who served as the chairperson of the Lobster Advisory Board for southwestern Nova Scotia at the time. After working as a commercial lobster fisher for 38 years, Beliveau is now retired and keeps busy mending lobster traps. Like many non-Indigenous fishers, he worried about how the ruling would affect his fishing community. He watched as hundreds of boats captained by non-Indigenous fishers went to Yarmouth to protest the ruling. Many demanded a rehearing. In November 1999, two months after the Marshall decision was released, the court took an unusual step and issued a clarification known as Marshall II. In the clarification, the court stated that treaty rights were not unlimited. The government had the power to regulate the industry, but it had an obligation to consult with indigenous nations if their treaty rights might be affected. The court wrote that treaty rights to catch fish can be limited 
on conservation or other grounds. It offered no clarification on the meaning of moderate livelihood. Conflicts on the water escalated. The period following the Marshall decision is known unofficially as the Lobster Wars. Though the violence began to ease in the early 2000s, by many accounts, the wars never really ended. Fisheries and RCMP officers, some dressed in riot gear, were reported to have used batons, tear gas, arrests, raids, and trap seizures to stop Mi'kmaq fishers from operating. Indigenous fishers told reporters at the time that DFO officers had pointed guns at them. The DFO denied these allegations. Some news reports described fisheries officers ramming Mi'kmaq fishing boats. Thousands of Mi'kmaq lobster traps were destroyed. Boats operated by indigenous fishers were sunk. The RCMP laid some charges against both non-indigenous and indigenous fishers. Much of the violence was concentrated in Miramichi Bay, off the shore of Escanobadish, Burnt Church First Nation, New Brunswick. One widely circulated video shot in Miramichi Bay showed a large government vessel speeding up and running over a small Mi'kmaq fishing boat, forcing the fishers overboard, and then gunning for their vessel again. One Mi'kmaq fisher later described being pepper-sprayed by officers while he was still in the water. An independent consultant, hired by the Canadian government to file a report following the unrest in Miramichi Bay, wrote, Some tens of millions of dollars were spent on enforcement in an atmosphere that was described to this consultant as resembling certain police state operations. In 2000, the federal government, controlled by a liberal majority, tried to quell the lobster wars by offering interim fishing deals to the 34 communities tied to the Marshall decision. These deals were not an implementation of the ruling. They didn't address treaty rights. Instead, in exchange for commercial licenses, federal funds, and training, bans had to assimilate into existing DFO regulations the same regulations that Marshall had fought and won to be exempted from. Many bands were concerned that signing the DFO's deals would infringe on their newly affirmed treaty rights. But, as an extensive body of scholarship has shown, the legacy of colonization and discriminatory Canadian legislation had left many bands struggling with poverty. Mi'kmaq communities could not afford to build up the infrastructure needed to sustain capital-intensive lobster fisheries on their own. For bands trying to provide adequate housing, health services, education, and employment to their members, it was difficult to turn down the government's offers. According to Jane McMillan's book, Truth and Conviction, the negotiations fractured Mi'kmaq leadership. By 2007, all but two of the 34 communities had signed agreements. The stress of the conflicts and the lengthy trials took a toll on Marshall's health. Saddened by the backlash against Mi'kmaq treaty rights, he never ate another lobster. After years of suffering from chronic respiratory disease, he died in 2009, 10 years after the Supreme Court ruling, at the age of 55. In the fall of 2019, 26 years after fisheries officers seized Marshall's gear in Pomkit Harbor, his eel net was discovered in a DFO office. Salt and mud still clung to the fibers. There are serious constitutional issues that DFO has never come to grips with, says Bruce Wildsmith, the lead lawyer on Marshall's case. Wildsmith, who lives in Lunenburg County, Nova Scotia, and who isn't indigenous, has been working on Mi'kmaq rights cases since 1974. He acts as legal counsel for the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs and the Quilmu Maguslan Negotiation Office. 
The court's ruling, he says, placed the onus on the department to both recognize Mi'kmaq treaty rights and propose regulations for what constitutes a moderate livelihood. Indigenous rights and treaty rights are protected in Section 35 of the Constitution Act. With no progress on either front over the past two decades, the DFO is operating in a legal gray area, he says. Currently, the DFO issues fishing licenses for commercial fishing, including communal commercial licenses, which are issued to a band. A band council then allocates a license to an individual fisher or to band-employed fishers. Recreational fishing, which prohibits selling any catch, and the food, social, and ceremonial FSC fishery. The latter is a direct outcome of the 1990 Supreme Court decision R. V. Sparrow, which stated that indigenous people have a right to fish for food, social, and ceremonial purposes. But, according to the DFO, it is illegal to sell FSC catches. Commercial lobster fishing requires massive investments of capital. According to a 2019 report from the McDonald Laurier Institute, MLI, a public policy think tank, the price of a license can exceed $2 million, and boats can cost more than $160,000. Some fishers estimate that boats can cost much more, over $500,000 in some cases. Since the Marshall decision, the DFO has tried to address the ruling by increasing Mi'kmaq and Wallistaque involvement in the existing commercial lobster fishery through financial support and training. According to the MLI report, Federal funding to promote indigenous engagement in the commercial lobster fishery between 2000 and 2018 totaled more than $500 million. Some of that funding was spent on a voluntary buyout program through which the government bought licenses back from some non-indigenous fishers and then allocated them to bans as communal licenses. The government's buyouts often included the purchase of fishers' boats and gear, but a lot of the used fishing gear that was distributed to Mi'kmaq and Wallistaque communities was found to be worn and too costly to repair. After the Marshall decision, on-reserve fishing revenue for Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia grew from $2.4 million in 1999 to just under $52 million in 2016, according to the MLI report. That's a small fraction of the province's lobster industry. The value of lobster exported from Nova Scotia in 2014, for example, was nearly $580 million. Contrary to many non-Indigenous fishers' fears, the report found, the rise of Indigenous commercial fishing did not destabilize the industry. Some Mi'kmaq leaders and fishers are calling for an alternative fishery, governed by Mi'kmaq authorities that recognizes their community's rights to catch and sell without adhering to DFO regulations. This past August, the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs, with the support of the Grand Council and Band Councils, released a working document outlining standards for a Mi'kmaq Nadugalim livelihood fishery. The Mi'kmaq philosophy of Nadugalim can be loosely defined as using the natural bounty provided by the Creator for the well-being and self-support of the individual and the community without endangering that bounty. The standards are intended as a guide for communities to then set their own regulations for a livelihood fishery plan, and they outline requirements like registration, accessibility, and consistency with Natugalim. Some non-Indigenous fishers are opposed to communities developing their own fishery plans outside of the DFO's regulations, fearing that a patchwork approach to managing the fishery may harm the future of the industry. This past fall, two bands in Nova Scotia launched their own Mi'kmaq-governed fisheries. Spaganagati First Nation launched its fishery on September 17th, 
the 21st anniversary of the Marshall decision. Potlotek First Nation followed suit in early October. These fisheries are considered illegal by the Crown. While the public may not comprehend a fishery outside the realm of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Terence Paul, chief of Member 2 First Nation and then co-chair of the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs, stated in a press release, that does not make our fishery illegal. Later that month, Paul, who has served as the chief of Member 2 First Nation, Donald Marshall Jr.'s home community for 36 years, stepped down as co-chair. Member 2 First Nation had left the assembly. Paul told the CBC that he blamed the DFO for creating divisions within Mi'kmaq leadership. In a response to proposals for Mi'kmaq-governed fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard, posted a statement on Facebook directing attention back to a series of deals the department has been trying to negotiate since 2014. These deals, called Rights Reconciliation Agreements, RRAs, are time-limited, legally binding agreements negotiated between the Crown and bands. The agreements outline Indigenous rights, including fishing, for the duration of the RRA, anywhere from 10 to 25 years. The deals offer conditional access to the existing commercial fisheries and may require Indigenous fishers to conform to DFO regulations. Until an agreement is reached with DFO, there cannot be a commercial fishery outside the commercial season, Jordan wrote in her Facebook post in September. Fishing without a license is a violation under the Fisheries Act. The contents of the agreements aren't public, and the language used to describe them in confidential DFO documents obtained through an Access to Information request paints a murky picture at best. A copy of one of the signed RRAs was also obtained, but the text was entirely redacted. According to one internal government document, however, an RRA seeks to reduce the risk of litigation for the term of the agreement. Bands that sign one of the new deals would have a hard time suing the DFO. It's not yet clear how this provision would be implemented. RRA negotiations have been taking place behind closed doors. As of early November, only three bands have signed RRAs. The Maliseet, Wallistaquag of Viger in Quebec, and in New Brunswick, the Elsipogtog and Escanobadige, Burnt Church First Nations. According to Wildsmith, they did not hold community referendums to guide their decisions. The deals have been publicly denounced in the press by many Mi'kmaq leaders. To some, the RRAs aren't about rights or reconciliation at all. They just reinforce the status quo. And, in recent months, the status quo has been rapidly careening out of control. In early September 2019, in the middle of the night, Ashton Bernard, a fisher from Eskasoni First Nation in eastern Cape Breton, was stopped by the fisheries officers after he pulled into a wharf near Yarmouth. He told the officers that he was fishing for a moderate livelihood. The officers seized his 32 crates, about 1,450 kilograms of lobster, more than $20,000 at market prices, and released the crustaceans back into the water, according to a partially redacted document that matches the details of the case. But the officers didn't charge him that morning. Bernard asked for documentation, some kind of evidence for what they were doing. One of the officers wrote 32 crates seized on a piece of loose-leaf paper. In May, more than eight months later, Bernard was charged with fisheries violations. His case is now in court. Bernard's is one of dozens of similar accounts. Cody Kaplan, who is Mi'kmaq and from Upaganjik, 
or Eel River Bar First Nation, has had his gear seized multiple times by fishery officers. They've also seized his boat and his trailer. I've been asking the creator to stop this madness and let us fish, he wrote to me. The DFO later charged Kaplan with fishing out of season. He has a court date set for December, but he says his gear was sold at an auction and he was never reimbursed. When asked to confirm whether gear seized from fishers may be sold at auctions, the DFO pointed to the Fisheries Act, which states, among other things, that when officers seize gear or catch, they may retain custody of it or deliver it into the custody of any person the officer or guardian considers appropriate. Some Mi'kmaq fishers have developed covert tactics to avoid run-ins with the DFO. Alexander McDonald's house is a stone's throw away from St. Mary's Bay, where he's been fishing for nearly half his life, and where he's been getting charged by the DFO for just as long. We fish in the fog, we fish at night, he told me. McDonald, now 58, is the former chief of Spaganagadic First Nation and a descendant of Jean-Baptiste Cope, the Mi'kmaq chief who signed the Treaty of 1752. Other fishers, like Marilyn Lee Francis, plan for the tides to hide their traps beneath the water's surface. We fish at the most dangerous times because we're trying to be incognito, says McDonald. The DFO's routine seizure of traps, lobsters, and sometimes boats and trucks forced Mi'kmaq fishers off the water, at least for a time. By charging people and taking them to court, you get them off the water, says Simone Polyandri, an associate professor of anthropology at Bridgewater State University, whose research focuses on Mi'kmaq rights and who spent the summer of 2000 on boats with Mi'kmaq lobster fishers. This approach by the DFO, says Polyandri, is similar to the tactics used in the United States in the 1970s by the FBI to suppress indigenous activists in the American Indian movement, which sought to address issues of systemic racism against indigenous people. It has the effect of tying up their time and resources and taking them away from fishing, says Polyandri. If fishers are fighting charges in court and spending money on lawyers, they don't have the time or the resources to fish. For indigenous fishers, it's often hard to predict when officers will make an arrest, seize their gear without laying charges, or lay charges and then drop them. In any case, it's a way of infringing on someone's rights without legally infringing on their rights, says Chris Milley, an adjunct professor in the Marine Affairs Program at Dalhousie University. The DFO has the power to arrest fishers who are in violation of the Fisheries Act, which includes those fishing without a license, and those fishing outside the department's seasons. Under the Act, officers are authorized to seize anything they believe was used to commit a fisheries offense. Boats, vehicles, gear, fish, and any other thing. The department can wait up to 90 days before returning seized items if no charges are laid. If charges are laid, five years can pass before the case is heard in court. McDonald has saved paper copies from his DFO charges and hearings over the years. His most recent charges were laid in 2015, after he went fishing in St. Mary's Bay with two of his cousins and his son. While driving home with his catch, he was pulled over by fishery officers. He told the officers that his party had been fishing for a moderate livelihood. McDonald and the fishers were charged with violating fishery regulations. They spent two years shuttling back and forth from Spaganagadic First Nation to the courthouse in Digby, a two-and-a-half drive hour each way, to argue their case. The Crown ultimately dropped the charges. 
McDonald and the three Fishers sued the DFO for racial profiling. He says the case was settled out of court. Nobody I spoke with could discern a logical pattern in the DFO's practices. There is this uncertainty about how they will treat any given situation, says lawyer Bruce Wildsmith, which raises the question of what principles, if any, are guiding the department's conduct, when officers will seize Mi'kmaq traps, lobster, and gear, whether they will lay charges, and why. On a windy Friday morning in August 2019, I drove south from Digby on Highway 1, a quiet two-lane road that follows the shores of St. Mary's Bay. I was headed to the DFO offices in Metahan to put these questions to the department directly. My cell phone had been lighting up all morning. Fishers were texting and calling to say that officers were out on the water, pulling up Mi'kmaq traps. As I drove closer, I could see stacks of lobster traps locked behind a metal fence. Inside the squat building, I spoke with Dwayne Muse, who has worked with the department for nearly two decades. He said that things had become more tense on the water than they'd been in years. He declined to elaborate further and later refused to speak to me again. About a week after our conversation, I heard from Debbie Buett Matheson, a communications advisor at the DFO. She'd heard that I had spoken with Muse. Any DFO interview requests had to go through her, she told me. After we hung up, I typed her name into Google. Buett Matheson's presumably tongue-in-cheek Twitter bio read, Spin doctress and dealer in creative truth-telling. Buett Matheson refused to arrange a follow-up interview with Muse or with any other DFO officer or representative. Jane Deeks, the press secretary for the DFO's minister's office, also refused to arrange any interviews related to moderate livelihood. It's a very sensitive subject, she wrote in an email. She offered to respond to written questions. I told her I'd already sent the DFO a dozen questions and received a paltry reply. Most of the fishers and legal experts I'd spoken with had the same questions I posed. What is the DFO's guiding principle when seizing traps, gear, and boats belonging to Mi'kmaq people fishing for a moderate livelihood? What determines whether the DFO will lay charges against Mi'kmaq fishers? And why, two decades on, has the department still not defined what constitutes a moderate livelihood? The DFO had replied to three of my 12 questions, two of which they'd rewritten in their own words to make them less specific. The responses were similar to the information found on the department's website. I asked Deeks whether the department could provide a more detailed response. I can confirm we have nothing more to add, she wrote back a week later. The DFO later responded to further questions by email. I turned instead to a DFO veteran. David Bishara worked as an officer for 33 years and left when he felt that, morally, he couldn't go on. He had been on the front lines of the lobster wars in the early 2000s, and he had been there for the years leading up to Marshall. Bishara had followed orders to board Mi'kmaq vessels, to seize gear, traps, and lobster, to make arrests, and to surveil Mi'kmaq fishers, photographing crates of lobster coming out of the water and following them to fish plants. Bashara had never spoken publicly about leaving the DFO. When I cold-called him, it was as though he had been waiting for someone to ask him about those years. Enforcement was pathetic, he told me. You didn't even want to have your uniform on. For a few years after the Marshall decision, the orders would pivot sporadically, he said, until somebody decided, okay, we're not going to go about it this way. We're going to go about it with full-fledged enforcement. And we're going to go seize gear and we're going to go charge the native fishermen. 
Bashara felt that the orders did not respect the Mi'kmaq rights that had been upheld in the Marshall decision. I blame it on ignorance and poor, poor management. Now, he says, I see things deteriorating all over again. He faults the DFO for the recent breakdown in the fishing community. I would later find, while listening through audio recordings from a 2018 hearing at the courthouse in Digby, an answer to at least one of the questions that I'd put to the DFO. It was a trial for the charges laid against Alexander McDonald, his son, and two of his cousins in 2015, when the men were fishing lobster outside the DFO's regulations. Muse, the fisheries officer I spoke with at the DFO offices in Metahan, was one of the officers involved. He was cross-examined about whether the department's fishing seasons apply to those fishing for a moderate livelihood. Under oath, Muse said, simply, there's no regulation to deal with moderate livelihood right now. In other words, when it comes to regulating treaty rights, the DFO doesn't seem to know why it's doing what it's doing either. After the DFO refused to facilitate any interviews, I called active officers to see if they would speak to me anonymously. Months went by before one called me back. The officer said they'd picked up the phone to call me many times, but had gotten scared. Now, exasperated with the department's mismanagement, they were willing to speak. Out of fear of repercussions, they spoke with me on condition of anonymity. Officers are forced into an impossible position, they explained. We're the boots on the ground, they said. We just want clear legislation. We don't have it. DFO officers are operating in no man's land, the officer said. They and their colleagues take the heat, but the problem doesn't lie on the front lines. When you get above the enforcement section, they said, that's where it gets wrong. I'm just caught right dead in the middle. One fall day a few years ago, McDonald arrived at the wharf and saw that the thick ropes that moored his boat had been burned off. His boat, Buck and Doe, was nowhere to be seen. It was later found drifting in the middle of St. Mary's Bay on fire. Another time, on a snowy Christmas morning, his lobster pound, on Little Paradise Road, was burned to the ground. It took firefighters hours to put out the flames. The RCMP considered both fires suspicious, though no charges were laid. Attacks like these are seen by many as expressions of the growing animosity within the fishing community. I don't go see a psychiatrist or psychologist or nothing, but people around me see that when I go fishing, my anxiety's high, said McDonald. He has nightmares too. Nightmare after nightmare of DFO attacking us. In another dream, he's asleep on his boat when someone sets him on fire. Stories of Mi'kmaq fishers' boats being burned and sunk have made headlines on the East Coast for years. But in recent months, the clashes between indigenous and non-indigenous fishers have catapulted into national and international media. I stayed out of this battle as long as I could, said Colin Spruill from his home in Delaps Cove on the shore of the Bay of Fundy last spring. Spruill, a non-indigenous fifth-generation lobster fisher and president of the Bay of Fundy Inshore Fishermen's Association, has been watching with concern as Mi'kmaq vessels fish outside the DFO's seasons and regulations. And it's not just small skiffs, like the one that Francis works out of, but large-scale boats with crews, he says. Spruill has grown increasingly frustrated that over two decades have passed without any clarity from the DFO about its regulations. The uncertainty of how and when the government will implement the 1999 court ruling and how that may affect non-indigenous fishers ripples throughout rural fishing communities, including Spruill's. 
His son, who is 13, wants to be a lobster fisher like his dad, his grandfather, and the generations before them. It's not uncommon for lobster fishing licenses to be passed down through generations. Spruill's license was once his father's, and it was his grandfather's before that. Spruill doesn't know if his son will have a future in the fishery. Fishing communities like Spruill's exist because of the lobster fishery. With no lobster industry, there's nothing left. The federal government has lacked the political courage to address the martial decision, said Spruill. The buck has stopped in these communities. Unfair for the federal government to do that. They have to figure something out legally in Ottawa and not leave it to us. Three Mi'kmaq parliamentarians have called for the creation of an alternative body that would allow for Mi'kmaq and Wallastaquoik to work together, directly with the Crown, instead of dealing with the DFO one band at a time. A couple of years ago, after Indigenous fishing boats were vandalized, Spruill said, some leaders in the fishing community decided they'd had enough. Impatient with government inaction, Spruill, alongside other non-Indigenous fishing industry representatives and Mi'kmaq chiefs, started a dialogue group to discuss fishing matters. The informal committee held a handful of meetings and calls about the fisheries, but as tensions escalated, the group unraveled. Things are about to turn bad, Spruill messaged me this past August. Shortly afterward, Spaganagadic First Nation launched its moderate livelihood fishery and conflicts started to flare. The aftermath saw weeks of unrest on and off the water. In various incidents, according to news reports, non-Indigenous fishers circled Mi'kmaq vessels, cut their traps, dumped their pots outside a DFO office, and barricaded a wharf to restrict Mi'kmaq fishers' access to the sea. Non-Indigenous fishers shot flares at a Mi'kmaq vessel. A Mi'kmaq boat was burned. A van belonging to a Mi'kmaq fisher was torched. In October, two lobster pounds used by Mi'kmaq fishers to store their catches were raided and vandalized, and hundreds of dead lobsters were littered on the ground. In one case, two Mi'kmaq fishers, one of whom was Randy Sack, Donald Marshall Jr.'s son, were forced to lock themselves inside the lobster pound while roughly 200 people surrounded the building, trashed it, and threatened to burn it down with the men trapped inside. Though RCMP officers were present, they have been accused of standing idly by. When the pound was destroyed by a fire a few days later, Michael Sack, chief of Spakanagavik First Nation, demanded military intervention. In mid-October, the government approved increased RCMP presence in the area. Meanwhile, DFO officers continued to seize traps set by Mi'kmaq fishers, according to statements from the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq chiefs. A week later, the government issued a press release stating that Alistair Charette, a former Liberal Provincial Cabinet Minister, had been appointed to serve as a special representative in efforts to continue to walk the shared path of reconciliation. The Spakanagatic First Nations' new fishery also stirred concern among neighboring First Nations. In late October, Carol D. Potter, chief of Bear River First Nation, whose reserve lies near the southern coast of St. Mary's Bay, said her band hadn't been consulted about how the fishery would affect their own community. Bear River First Nation, wrote Chief Potter in a press release, was facing backlash from the unrest, and her community's long-standing relationships with non-Indigenous fishers were suffering. Spruill blames the federal government for driving a wedge between Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishers. Communities, he said, that have to share the ocean, effectively deflecting attention away from the DFO's own practices. 
It's been incredibly painful, Spruill said. I'm fearful for what it means for the future of my relationships with indigenous people right here in my hometown. Kevin Squires, a non-indigenous lobster fisher and president of the Eastern Cape Breton branch of the Maritime Fishermen's Union, said he hears concerns from members about what the future of their fishery will look like if Mi'kmaq fishers increasingly catch and sell lobster outside of government regulations. We can't do our part in preparing our members for the fishery to come when we don't know, he said. While he said he respects that the discussions around RRAs are nation-to-nation and therefore don't include non-Indigenous fishers' voices, he fears the impact RRAs might have on less-established fishers' livelihoods. Echoing the DFO, many non-Indigenous fishers have expressed concern that Mi'kmaq fishing outside DFO regulations will deplete lobster stocks. But, to some, the sustainability argument is a mask. I don't think conservation has ever been a sincerely significant factor in the exclusion of Mi'kmaq to the fishery, said Dalhousie University's Chris Milley, who has been researching the politics and management of fisheries for decades. Milley is now assisting bands to develop Natugalim livelihood, fishery management plans. To the government and non-Indigenous fishers, Milley said, the health of lobster stocks isn't as important as the health of the lobster market. That, some suggest, is what they're really fighting over. The light blue sky stretched high across the Atlantic as Marilyn Lee Francis and Tiffany Nickerson drove home from the harbor. Their reserve, Acadia First Nation, is less than a 10-minute drive east of where Francis docks her boat at Lobster Rock Wharf. After driving Nickerson home, Marilyn Lee stopped by her mother's house to say hi before walking across the gravel road to her own home. Her mother, Marilyn Francis, was beating at the kitchen table and watching the cooking show The Chef's Line on Netflix. They said DFO is going to be down there tomorrow taking traps out, Marilyn said to her daughter, pausing the show. Below the flat-screen TV was a banner that read, We are all treaty people. A friend had called to tell Marilyn what they'd heard. Marilyn and her family were used to community members calling or messaging or stopping by to let them know about the DFO's movements. Marilyn used to fish, too. Growing up, she had been taught by her own mother and grandmother about her inherent right to fish, hunt, and harvest. It's something she's passed on to Marilyn Lee. Like her daughter, Marilyn has had her share of run-ins with the DFO. In 1998, she was charged with violating fishing regulations for fishing lobster without a DFO license, the same way Marilyn Lee fishes today. I'm not trying to be a lobster mogul, Marilyn Lee told me. I'm trying to be self-sufficient. She doesn't use the term moderate livelihood. The word moderate, she says, isn't right to her. That's their word, she told me, adding that, to her, it means just enough to survive. The Canadian government, she went on, is so used to us not having anything that even a little bit of something is too much. Marilyn Lee lives below the poverty line, like many Mi'kmaq living on reserves in Nova Scotia. According to the most recent census, the average annual income among members of Acadia First Nation was $18,042. The average income on reserves across Nova Scotia was $20,477. The Indian Act of 1876 and related policies of the Canadian government displaced and dispossessed Indigenous people from their land and resources. The Crown gave small tracts of land, often the least desirable pieces, to indigenous communities as reserves, while settlers kept the most desirable plots for themselves. Today, 
indigenous people have 0.2% of their traditional territories as reserve lands. This past fall, Maryland posted a photo of six steamed lobsters on Facebook, their shells of fiery red, and wrote, Would anyone like to barter six fresh-cooked lobsters for one loaf of whole wheat bread, 2% farmer's milk, molasses, eggs, bag of dog food, and Tide? Message me. Walalan. Walalan is the Mi'kmaq word for thank you. She later posted a photo of the groceries that she'd gotten in the trade and wrote, That's what I'm talking about. Received my food after bartering cooked lobster. Love it. We barter a lot, Marilyn Lee explained. If our truck breaks down, barter a mechanic. Go and get gas, ask, do you want $20 or do you want lobster? Bartering, said Marilyn Lee, is like fishing outside the DFO system. Using our own resources, using our own land, she said. Now the government is completely cut out. That's why they're pissed. Outside Marilyn's kitchen window were around 20 of Marilyn Lee's lobster traps some stacked over six feet high. They were piled on the grass where the DFO had left them. Officers had hauled some of her traps out of the water and locked them up in the DFO compound. After Marilyn Lee asked for her pots back, an officer dropped them in her yard. So are you going to have fish with me tonight? Marilyn asked her daughter. A piece of halibut was thawing on the counter. The fish had been expensive, said Marilyn, almost 20 bucks for a piece that would feed two. She hoped Marilyn Lee and her husband would eat with her, as they often did. Marilyn Lee said they'd bring potatoes. Later, while Marilyn Lee stood at her kitchen sink washing the potatoes, her brother Peter Francis pulled up to her back porch in his pickup truck. He'd just heard from a friend that DFO officers were out on the water. Peter taught Marilyn Lee how to fish, and he keeps an eye out for her. They didn't haul in nothing, Peter told Marilyn Lee through the open truck window, his engine still running. They're probably getting their bearings for tomorrow, marking them, he said. Ooh, they're getting ready to attack, attacking the little Indians, Marilyn Lee teased. They're probably going to haul tomorrow, he told her before driving off, his tires kicking up dust. Marilyn Lee texted Nickerson and made plans to go fishing the next morning, when the tide would be low. Then she turned back to the potatoes and put water on the stove to boil. That was an article titled, The New Lobster Wars by Zoe Heaps Tennant from the January-February issue of The Walrus. I'm Matt Spears. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson. Audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. And I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.